You guys look good. I was looking over the crowd during the worship and thinking, man, we're a good-looking group. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Amen. Well, happy 4th of July. I hope uh, you have it on your plans today to go cook up some meat somewhere and eat it or tofu. Don't want to leave out the vegans. God bless you. There will be some, uh, some meat getting smoked at my house in about T-minus three hours and counting, so I can't wait. Well, we are on um, part two of our series, Living with a Burning Heart. We started last week. We started talking about uh, Jesus' words to the church of Laodicea from Revelation 3, and uh, we unpacked some of that. And then today, we're going to continue on that same vein, but we're going to hop over to John 13 to 17. We're going to connect these two passages, and I'm sort of just going to lay out an overview of John 13 to 17, and we're going to be unpacking more details from John 13 to 17 over the next several weeks, uh, Dustin, Ash, Hazen, and myself. So um, that's where we're headed this morning. Let's uh, have another word of prayer. We pray a lot, don't we? Pray over the offering. Pray, we, we pray basically over the announcements. Pray over the word. Let's just, let's just do it again. We go 24-7, so might as well. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We set our hearts before you to receive from you. And so even today, just this national holiday, we remember the independence that our nation has now experienced and the liberties and the freedoms, uh, we're asking, God, that you would meet us in a way that declares the truth of your kingdom and your heart for us, that we could walk in the liberty of your love. And so, Lord, open the eyes of our understanding, release light and revelation. I ask you to hold my hand. Let me share and speak as your oracle. We give you thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. So just a little recap from last week. We talked about Revelation 3, 15 through 20, Jesus' words to the church of Laodicea. We explained how so often when people are looking at Jesus' words to Laodicea, they kind of stop with, because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And they just almost act like the whole passage ends there. But when you look at the passage, you realize, oh, man, he's saying a whole lot more than you're just going to get spewed. You're just going to get, you know, kicked out. And then he begins to address us as a counselor. And he addresses us in kindness. And I think for so long, me and I know many others, when you've approached that passage, you thought, oh, man, he's just so mad. And, uh, but when you read it, when you get under the words there, you realize, oh, he's not coming in anger. He's coming in gentleness. He's coming with a heart that says, I want relationship with you, so I'm just telling you the truth. And I'm inviting you out of the place where you've been into a place of wonder with me. And so uh, you, when you can catch kind of his heart in that, um, I think it really shifts what that passage, um, what it's doing and what it means to us. I, I had someone share with me after the service last week. They said, you know, it's so important that we don't shift God's tone depending on how we read a passage. In other words, he sets his nature and the knowledge of him. He tells us what he is like um, he declared his name to Moses and his nature to Moses and his nature and his name, it never changes. Uh, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, abounding in goodness and truth, uh, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is who he is. He goes, by no means clearing the unrepentant guilty, visiting the, the, the trespasses of the parents to the children on the third and fourth generation. He says, I'm, ju I'm a just God but I'm a kind God. I'm a merciful God. And if you'll come to me, I'm, I'm willing to, to touch your heart and cleanse you and change you like we were singing this morning. And so in reading Revelation 3, I think it's important that we see him in that light. And, and, and that's what I was pulling out last week, that he's asking us in Revelation 3 
to open our hearts vulnerably to him. And that idea in our day and age, vulnerability is like this scary thought. Uh, being vulnerable with people is scary, and, and even being vulnerable with God is scary. And I started thinking about how often people have learned to do the Christian things, and, and really you, you do all the Christian events, you read the Christian books, you, you do the Christian movies, you do whatever, you, you know, but you can literally do all the Christian things with a heart that's not open. You can literally do all of it with a closed heart. And when you live with a closed heart, you don't actually live. Because we're, we're meant and made to live with open, flowing hearts. Hearts that experience all the highs and all the lows. All the challenges and all the blessings. We're, exposed, we're supposed to experience all these things with a heart that's open to Jesus and open to one another. And that's really what Jesus said in, in Revelation 3.20. He says, I'm knocking on the door of your heart, and I'm asking you to open your heart to me. And um, I think that right there is the, it's really just the foundational thought for Jesus, I would say his mission statement for you. For years, I've said it this way, that God's worldview as it relates to you is that he wants to conquer the one thing that he's placed out of his sovereign control, and that's your heart. To, so to say it another way, his mission statement for you is that you would live with an open heart to him. And that's what I think he's going after in Revelation 3.20. Well, we also found this, that he describes lukewarmness, and he says basically that lukewarmness being a lukewarm uh, believer is about believing that you don't have any needs. As soon as you get to that place of thinking you've arrived, now you're stepping right into lukewarmness. And so it's in that place that he says, listen, you got to recognize your need and, and you've got to invite me in. And don't imagine you've arrived because once you get to that place of I've arrived, I've attained, that's when you start growing lukewarm. Amen. Happy 4th of July. We're just here to eat hot dogs. Not exactly. Um, so we talked about that last week. We talked about uh, lovelessness, what that looks like, and how living with a closed heart ultimately brings us into being loveless. And then we talked about how Jesus' desire for us is is greater depth of intimacy. He wants to give us zeal and wisdom and spirit of revelation and righteous works. He wants to heal us and counsel us. And, and so this is what Jesus is inviting us to. Now listen, I, I wanna just say this. Like When we're teaching about how Jesus, um, sort of his philosophies and what his desires are for us and how he wants to respond you know, so often we're giving sort of broad strokes, big picture kind of things. And somebody says, well, I just want the three points that are going to get me through my week. And, and I appreciate that. I, I appreciate teaching like that. I teach like that, you know, regularly. I taught like that to the, to the young adults on, on Thursday and said, here's some key points. But what we're doing right now is we're shifting paradigms. We're re... We're, we're, we're reapproaching the word and allowing the word to shift the way we understand God. And so our primary way that we are going to instruct and teach the word is through the lens of the knowledge of God. Who is God and who are we in light of that? Does that make sense? And somebody says, well, make it practical. And I go, that is practical. The most practical thing I can do is unpack the knowledge of God to you as, as he's unpacking himself to me. That's the most practical thing. And so when we're approaching a, a study like this in John 13 to 17, um, that's what we're after. It's what's his heart? What's he saying? How have we thought about him wrongly? And how can that be transitioned and shifted to a right revelation, right knowledge of him or, or closer to what's truth? And, and so that's what we're after. So... Um, I'll just say this, for several months now, we've kind of, in a leadership setting, we've kind of been batting around John 13 to 17. We've been 
uh, batting around Revelation 3, 15 through 20, we really felt like the Lord was ministering to us deeply from these passages in our leadership team. And then we just begin to realize, oh, this is for the whole spiritual family. Now, I want to I wanna encourage you, yay, more than encourage, strongly encourage, yay, more than I want to challenge you to make John 13 to 17 a habit for yourself over the next six weeks. Like, let's do this together. So when you open the Bible tomorrow, I'm going to invite you to open it to John 13 and read John 13 through 17, or if you get three chapters or whatever you do in your normal time with the Lord, I want to encourage us, let's all go together in this. Amen. Because it, it's, it's no good if, you know, the leaders and the preachers go into it and, and, and the spiritual family is like, hey, that's good for you guys, but we're just going to go ahead and hear what y'all have to say about it. Now, let's all go into it. Let's go into it at our house churches and let's go into it in our, in our small groups and different environments and, and make it a, a focus over these next few summer months. I think Jesus really wants to, to meet us and encounter us there. So what I've done for you today is I'm giving you a menu. I'm really just giving you the menu, and then it enables you to decide what you want to order in John 13 to 17 and what you want to feast on. Does that make sense? So often people say, well, I go to church to get fed. And I'm like, no, 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 you feed yourself. You put it in your mouth yourself. You know, I know babes, babies need to be fed with a bottle, and I appreciate that, and we want to do that here. But we also want to invite the mature among us, hey, no, Go into it and, and yourself and, and, and get into the word yourself and, and don't just rely on the pastors and the leaders to, to do the work for us. So uh, Roman numeral two in your notes, I want to work through this. Why study John 13 to 17? Why study it? I want to lay out a, a, a few points as to why I do this. Um, many Bible scholars theologians, commentators, they look at John 13 to 17, and they've said this about John 13 to 17. They say, it is the pinnacle of Jesus' teachings. So when you think about what Jesus laid out in all of his parables and all the teachings, including the Sermon on the Mount, John 13 to 17, is, it's the high point of everything that Jesus taught. Um, some call it the final frontier of the Gospels. Um, when, you, when you think about that, when you realize that Jesus is doing something in these chapters that really put the exclamation point on his teaching ministry, that tells us we should go deep into these passages. Now, let me just explain this to you. It's the last week of Jesus' life, okay? He's going to be arrested tonight. He's going to be put to death in 24 hours. John 13 to 17 gives us everything he drops on the disciples in that context. He's probably not just frivolously telling knock-knock jokes. You know, he's giving them the deepest drippings of his heart. And he's doing it in a very focused and intentional way. If you, if you look at the last week of his life, this would be Thursday night that he's giving this teaching. On Tuesday night, he gives them uh, Matthew 24 and 25. Now, let me just, for those of you that don't, that doesn't reference instantly, Matthew 24 and 25 is Jesus uh, most intense, detailed teaching on the end times. And it opened up so many questions and thoughts. When he gave the, the um, Olivet Discourse, which is what Matthew 24 and 25 is known, it opened up so many questions for the, for the disciples. Namely, how are we going to live through what you've told us is going to happen at the end of the age? Well, by Thursday night, he's gone in 24 hours. He's arrested that night. So John 13 to 17, he's giving that as the sort of part two to what he gave on Tuesday night. Does that make sense? It's so helpful to get it in context because when you, when you see like, oh, oh, he's not just throwing random teachings out there whenever. 
He's actually laying these things out in a progression on purpose. It really helps you to understand what's going on. So John 13 to 17, he's putting in context everything he just said about the end times, the end of the age, the trials and the challenges that are going to come on the earth. And then John 13 to 17, he's now saying, this is how the church is going to look, and this is the prescription on how you're going to live. So if (laughs) here we are, we're in the church, we're believing that the return of the Lord is near, John 13 to 17 then is required, it's required study and required teaching for the church in this hour, amen. And so here's the thing. When we look into John 13 to 17, what we see is this. John 13 to 17 lays out where the church is going, what the church will look like. It gives us the vision of what believers are going to look like at the end of the age. Not only how are they going to make it through the trials and the crisis and the difficulties, but how they are going to grow into maturity. And so chapter 17, we see this amazing vision of what it looks like when believers um, are operating in oneness. When Jesus prays, he says, make them one, Father, as you and I are one. It's actually a prayer, but it's a prophecy because the Son of God praying to his Father to to God the Father, that prayer is a 100% answered prayer. This is a prophecy of where things are going. I want to just say it this way. Just as Jesus prayed it, the church will be one. The church will be one experiencing that glory of oneness just like the Father and the Son experience. This is where it's going in this age. So anything that's like, you know, not moving toward John 17 in in terms of like church movements, you can almost just put it on the side because he's taking everything toward a mature bride that's mature in love, that's functioning as one body across every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, across generations, male and female. This is where it's going. It will be the church's finest hour. And so that's where he's taking us. So, beloved, we need living understanding of this. We, we can't just go, oh, that's a nice Bible study. I remember that one summer they talked about it a lot. No, we got to get into this so this can become who we are. This is who he's inviting us to be, and it's, it's really who the church is going to be. Also, I'll mention this. Why study this? I've already given a pretty compelling argument, but when you see... The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you realize Jesus is laying out the value system of his kingdom in those passages, what you realize he's doing in John 13 to 17 is he's showing us what the the followership of, uh, of believers, what the church looks like when it's lived the values of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what that looks like in fruition. He's showing us the, the fullness of, of the church operating in his values. And so um, lastly, I'll just say this. Why study these passages? We study these passages because it is, it's fantastic. Jesus shows us in these passages the way that he relates to his father. He unpacks for us the way that he relates to us, and then he's giving it to us as a model of how we're to relate to the Father and how we're to relate to one another. It, that idea, when you read through these five chapters, that Jesus is literally showing us how he relates to God, the, the, the way his heart is open and flowing with God, the way the, the Father's heart is open and flowing with Him, and the way that they flow with Holy Spirit, He's showing us this whole transaction, and then He's inviting us into that same 
understanding that same relational transaction with him, the Spirit, and the Father. And I think there's a massive shift that takes place in our paradigms when we get this idea. You understand, you and I are not simply people trying to follow a list of rules that will make our life better. That's not what Christianity is. It's not a code of morality. It's not a system of belief. It's, it's not even, as um, sociologists would describe, a world religion. I mean, yes, in a sociological context, they would call it that. But what Jesus is saying is, I am explaining to you how God relates to God, God the Son, how I relate to my Father. I'm showing you how I do it. Even to the point by John 17, I want you to get your mind around it. In John 17, after he's taught them everything, and they've now moved the, the uh, conversation from where they were uh, having the, the Last Supper, uh, they're now in the Mount of Olives. Uh, here's what he does. In front of his disciples, Jesus lifts his eyes. He's looking at the sky, and he starts talking to the Father while the disciples are watching him, how he talks to the Father, and then he's doing that uh, preach-pray thing. You know when people get on, a, like, they start in a, in a prayer meeting and they're gonna preach to you while they're praying? God, I just thank you that everybody in this room, you're just gonna touch them with fire because we all know that we need to be touched with fire. God, fill them all right now. Everybody that's lukewarm right here, fill them with fire. And like, they're preaching to the guys they're praying it. Jesus is actually kind of doing that in John 17. He goes, Father, I thank you that the glory that I had with you, he's preaching to them, the glory that I had with you from before the world began, I thank you that I, that glory, I'm about to be restored to that glory. He goes, Father, I thank you. And he goes through the list of all these details but he's literally looking at the sky saying these things while the disciples are sitting there watching him. And my point is this. <laughs> this is not about a system of belief or a morality or a world religion. This is Jesus handing his followers the relationship that he has with God the Father. And he's saying, this is how I want you to relate to God the Father. Just consider that for a moment. Because just the way that I'm relating, I want you to relate to him. In John 14, he would go as far as to say, the works that I do, you're going to do these works. Why? Because I go to the Father, and my Father and I are going to come and make our home in you. You get it? Every religion is trying to figure out how to get to God Jesus literally says, we are going to come and get inside of you. I mean, this thing is like explosive when you actually get under the, the verses. And so he, he's saying, this is how I've been relating to the Father. I don't, I don't say anything that the Father doesn't tell me to say. I don't do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to do. He goes, now... I'm inviting you to experience the exact same thing because the Father and I are going to come and live inside of you. And so it's just a, a mind-boggling, powerful understanding. And, and I think that so often we've, um, we've just reduced our relationship with God and our Christianity to this, like, I don't know, following the rules or this system of belief thing. And this living relationship, I don't know if there's any passages in Scripture where it becomes more clear, more evident that what Jesus is showing us is this is a living relationship that you get to experience with the Father just like I've been experiencing it with the Father. And so that's what he's bringing them into. And so it's a model for how we're to relate to the Godhead and to one another. And, and I want to emphasize that one another point.
And I'll get into it more in just a moment. But he literally shows us, this is how I have related to you, and thus I want you to relate to one another in the exact same way. Which is why he gets to that place in John 17. He says that they would be one even as you and I are one. And so I think for me, as I've been going into this study, I realized this, that so many of the points of how is the church going to become mature? How are we going to become a bride that's flowing in love? How are we going to be united? John 13 through 17, Jesus unpacks those details and brings us right into it. And so this is just, it's just required uh, teaching, required reading and study for all of us. So I want to encourage all of us into it. All right. Now, let me give a few of the key thoughts that Jesus unpacks. All right. John 13. And if, if you got notes, you could take a note or two, but let me just lay out this thought there. John 13, we have a contrast explained in the text. What we have is we have Judas, who is going to go betray Jesus, and we have Peter, who is about to deny Jesus. And so when you read it, you realize, oh my gosh, we've got a betrayer and a denier that are both highlighted in John 13. And Man, when you read through the, the passage of it, Ash and I were talking beforehand, it's really interesting because Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me this night. He goes, whoever it is that, that dips his hand in the dish with me at the same time, that's it. And, and the disciples all miss it that it's Judas. And then by the end of the chapter, uh, Jesus says to Peter, he goes, hey, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster even crows. And he goes, you know, wait, what? I'll, I'll die with you. He goes, you'll deny me tonight. And you got to think that Peter's going, oh, my gosh. Am I the betrayer? Oh, my gosh. And it's probably not until Judas shows up and kisses Jesus in the garden on the cheek that Peter goes, oh, praise God. At which point he pulls out his knife. He goes, yeah, I said, <laughs> right? And, and then Jesus goes, put the knife away. I mean, there's so many interesting things happening on there. But in John 13, you have Jesus. He's, he's showing them servanthood. He's, he's showing them a, a variety of things. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but Jesus literally washes Judas' feet and then tells Judas to go and do what he does quickly. I just don't know if you feel the way Jesus is just wide open. Like the Son of God has never held back his heart to you. He's, he's so wide open that he would say to the disciples multiple times, there's many more things I want to say, but it will blow your mind. You can't take it. You can't hear it. And so here's Jesus, open-hearted. He shows them what it is to serve in his kingdom, and then he's got the betrayer. The betrayer is going to sell him out. The betrayer is Judas. Jesus is going to be murdered that night. Fast forward, now we get into the conversation with Peter. And Peter says, Lord, I'll, I'll die for you. I'll die for you. He goes, will you die for me? He goes, you'll deny me. Well, what do you mean? No, no, I, I, I would lay down my life for you. He goes, tonight you're going to deny me three times. And, and we end John 13 with that verse, that you're going to deny me. But watch this. John 14, verse 1. I, some, some chapter breaks in the Bible are super helpful. Some of them are really unhelpful. John 14, that chapter break, is one of the most unhelpful ones because we get this cliffhanger. We get, we get Peter who is just about to like probably have a meltdown in front of everybody. 
Will you lay down your life for, for my sake? Most surely I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you've denied me three times. And, and the way we see chapter breaks is we think the curtain falls and the scene changes. But the curtain doesn't fall right there. The conversation continues. And the very next things, the next thing out of Jesus' mouth is, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He goes, I'm going to prepare, prepare a place for you, Peter. He goes, and if I go prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And he goes, and, and, and where I go now, uh, and where I go you know, and the way you know. In other words, those first four verses are, answer, are, are like uh, continuation of what he just told Peter. So one of the key things that Jesus is doing in the entire story of John 13 to 17 is he's showing us the difference between one who denies him and one who betrays him. It's a sincere, fearful believer and how tender he is toward the sincere and fearful believer versus the one that has completely rejected Jesus forever. He just literally says, he goes, go do what you're gonna do. But with the sincere one that says, I'm weak, I'm scared, I'll I'll get out in front of myself and say, I'm gonna die for you. He goes, look, look, I know your heart, but he goes, Listen, I'm tender towards you. I'm tender towards you. He goes, I'm preparing a place for you. He goes, I'm gonna come back and receive you to myself. He's literally comforting this sincere, fearful, weak believer while Jesus is about to be arrested in a matter of hours. I just, you just kind of catch the heart of the Son of God in that. It's, it's powerful. I love that about Jesus, that his love is limitless. And his tenderness is ex- exceptional. It's, it's beyond comprehension. Another reason that he preaches and sa- shares with them what he shares is he's going to give them the new commandment. Now, the new commandment is what? Love one another as I have loved you, right? Except for that's not a new commandment, right? The the. Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We know as a first and second commandment. That's already well established through the volume of Scripture. But Jesus literally says, I'm giving you a new commandment. So what's going on there? What's happening there? Here's what's happening. We've seen the Chosen series a little bit, right? Some of y'all seen it? Yeah, everybody, okay, good. It's been fun, right? Some of it's a little bit off the, but it's good. It's good stuff. Who knows? But, uh, you know, one of the things that I love about the Chosen series is it pulls out that this team that Jesus has gotten together, they would never have been together on their own. Like, I love the tension between Peter and Matthew and you just feel like Peter at any moment could just like maybe just go off on Matthew and just beat him up because he just does not like him at all. This, this tax collector, you know, this fisherman from the same town. Like, I just love the tension of that. I, I love the zealot guy. They're like, hey, let, am I ruining it for people? Bro, you got to get up to speed. Hey, no, 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 no. See, that's too bad. He said he's back on episode two. No, we are on like episode seven. Anyway, there's a random guy who likes to fight. And they all want him to start fighting for them. It's these interesting dynamics. Well, you totally get the sense that if Jesus leaves, right, they're not staying together. So why, again, the question was, why does Jesus have to give a new commandment? Because Jesus is the glue. He's the glue to the disciples. That if he leaves, which he's about to tonight, he's about to be arrested tonight. And he goes, guys, I'm commanding you something. 
They go, okay. He goes, love one another the way I've loved you. They're like, you know, you you just wonder by that point, like, were they still kind of looking sideways at each other? (laughs) They're like, okay, we're going to love one another the way, okay, the way you've loved us, okay. Okay, okay, all right, so you're telling us to stick together. And he goes, yeah, and and greater love has no one than he laid down his life for his friends. He goes, I'm calling you guys to lay down your lives for one another. I want you to feel this. Because if Jesus doesn't command them to do that, they're probably dispersing. In fact, three times he gives the new commandment and then three more times he re-ups it and references it, to, references it in five chapters. And it made such an impression on John that six times in John's epistles, he reiterates the new commandment. Love one another. Love one another, love one another, love one another. And here's what I think we're gonna find as you lean into these passages, that loving one another is exactly what Jesus was asking for in Revelation 3. It's having an open heart with one another. Can I just, I just wanna emote for a moment. I'll, I'll try to be kind. We imagine John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. We imagine that in the moment that we're supposed to lay our lives down for somebody, that, man, we're just, we're that noble hero of a Christian, and da-da, we're just gonna fly in and lay our life down. I wanna propose something to you. If your heart isn't open to your spiritual family, if you, if, you're, if you don't have a flowing, open heart, maybe we're in fantasy if we think we're gonna lay our lives down with a closed heart. Do you know how much negotiation we're gonna do in that moment if our heart is closed down to somebody and they need us to really lay our life down? We go, well, man, I'm busy. I, mean, I know you're dying, but hey, hey, I'm sick, pulled a hammy. I mean, we're gonna be like, making up all these excuses because our heart is closed down. If your heart is closed down, do you, do you really imagine you're gonna lay your life down? At the, very, at the very least, we open our heart and we share what's inside. We walk through our challenges with one another And that actually enables us to get to this place of being one and then enables us to get to this place that Jesus calls greater love has no man than this. The laying down of the life. This is what he's calling the disciples to do in this. He goes, you have to love each other the way I love you. And all of a sudden, guys, as I'm like, Walking through this, I'm realizing, oh, this is the real stuff. This isn't just the philosophy of Christianity. This isn't just the rules. This isn't just the, you know, the exciting preacher point. This is the real stuff where now I have an open heart to God and I have an open heart to my brothers and sisters and we live this way, flowing in openness with God and openness with one another and literally laying ourselves down. And here's what I'm realizing, that the more vulnerable we get with God, the easier it is to be vulnerable with one another. And that's really what he's after, is an open, flowing, vulnerable heart that isn't self-protecting, that isn't trying to parade like it's something that it's not. He's like, no, open your heart, because I already know you're poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. He goes, let me just come on in there. And this is really where the rubber meets the road. And and I think this, I think it's the key to revival. I just want to say that. We've had all these keys to revival, fasting, praying, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I believe in all of them, humble, all these points. But if you have a closed heart, Jesus can't come in. But having an open heart and the Son of God comes storming in, now, now I think we're talking about what it means to come out of lukewarmness. Now I think we're talking about what it, comes, what it means to come out of lovelessness, like really come out of lovelessness, to give ourselves in a, in a deep and, and, and real and rich way to one another. So he gives them 
the new commandment. That's a, a key thing. Now, something else that he's doing in this passage, what is he, why is he giving them this, this uh, teaching? He's giving it to them because he's trying to impart joy and peace. Three different times, just hear me, three times he says to them, I'm telling you these things right now that your joy would be full. Guys, they're about to face the greatest crisis of their life. Their, their best friend, their master, Jesus is about to be arrested and, and brutalized right in front of their eyes. He's about to be crucified right in front of them. The, the king of life is about to be put to death. And he says, I'm telling you stuff right now that's going to enable you to roll right through that and be full of joy. Just imagine this. Like, this is available to us. This is my point that I really want to get across. It doesn't matter if the world is exploding and going to hell. It doesn't matter if Jesus is getting crucified right in front of us. The words he gives in John 13 to 17 are enough to cause our hearts to be filled with joy, even through the midst of it. And furthermore, he says, and peace. Peace, not like the world gives. I'm sharing these things that though you're, in, you're having tribulation, that you can be filled with peace. Listen, the earth is going to continue to shake. Challenges are going to continue to mount. Things are not just going to turn back into easy street. It is going to continue to have tumult and trial. John 13 to 17 gives us truth that will fortify our hearts to keep us fortified by joy and peace in an hour that the earth is running around frantic, fearful, in pain, traumatized. This is what's in the word in John 13 to 17. He specifically says, I'm telling you these things, that you have full joy and you'd have real peace. Not shallow. This is not shallow. You know, joy isn't shallow. I'm not talking about frivolous silliness. I'm talking about something that keeps your heart buoyant when everyone else's heart is sinking. Something that keeps your heart settled when everybody else's heart is absolutely flipping out. Joy and peace. That's what he's giving the disciples because they are about to face massive betrayal, crisis, persecution, and suffering. And he's giving them the, the answers to, to be able to handle it, walk through it. I already mentioned he, he showed how he related to the Father as the blueprint of how we are rela to relate to he and the Father. I just want to give you this little piece, the greater works. When you look at John 14, see, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just assuming we're all about to go into this deep. But when you look at John 14, you're going to hit John 14, 12. Now, John 14, 12 has been a verse my whole life. I've said, Lord, I want that. I don't know how to get that, but I want that. John 14, 12 says this, greater works than these shall you do because I go to the Father. The works that I do and greater works than these shall you do because I go to the Father. Now, can you imagine the disciples sitting there looking at Jesus, having watched him raise the dead, having watched him, you know, cast out demons out of, you know, the gathering demoniac and lepers get healed, blind eyes, everything's getting healed. And he, they, he turns and says, you're going to do greater works than these because I'm leaving. I mean, in that moment, you just got to be thinking, they're going, um, that doesn't seem how it's going to work. Because if you're leaving, the works are leaving. He, and so he begins to explain, no, there is a new dynamic coming. And that new dynamic is my father and I are going to live in you. Holy Spirit is going to live in you. And, and, and he explains this. He goes, you got to get it. The words and the works that you see me doing, it's the Father doing them through me. Thus, 
when I go and myself and the Father come and live in you, you're going to do the same works because we're going to be on the inside of you. It's going to be the Father and I doing the works through you. And what Jesus explains to us in John 14 is this, that it's about getting really thin so that he who's on the inside can shine through with force. See, I used to think it was about how intense can I get? Like if I hit a certain level of anointing and power and sound and volume, <laughs> that man, then we'd get the breakthrough. Ah, you know. And I and I like a good shouting prayer meeting. Let me just be honest. I, I like it. I like shouting. I like jumping. I like when the prayer meeting looks like an aerobics class. I love all of that. I'm into all of it. And so, I mean, I've done this thing before where I go, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to shout on the prayer mic today. I'm just going to just, just release the love of God. Father, in the name of Jesus. And it's like, why is this happening? You know, just, I'm tuned pretty tight. You know, my, my tuning fork is, it's up there. <laughs> but what he's saying in John 14 is, Get real thin so it's not you doing the works. So it's the Father on the inside of you shining through. He goes, because that's what I've been doing. The words and the works, he goes, they're not mine. It's the Father shining through. Jesus has life in himself that he could command the dead to rise. He has power and authority in his earthly ministry where he could have called for legions of angels. But the entire time, Jesus is humbling himself to such a place, he is bringing himself so low that he literally says, I don't say anything that I haven't heard the Father say, and I don't do anything that I haven't heard, seen the Father do. He goes, every one of the words you're hearing, he goes, it's not me, it's the Father speaking in me. And, and so that's why he's looking at them and he's going, guys, you, you believe that, the, that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, right? And they go, well, just show us the Father and it's enough. He goes, what do you think you've been looking at this whole time? What you've been looking at is I am allowing the Father to speak and minister through me. I only say what he says. I only do what I see him do. He goes, and that's why you're going to do the same works too. You know what I, I'm coming to realize? I used to think it was about getting muscled up. <laughs> and I think it's not about getting muscled up. It's about getting dialed down. Can you just let God come out? Can you just hear him on the inside and let him, let him speak through you? Can you, just, can you get thin enough to where he's just shining forth? So he's showing us how he relates to the Father so that we can relate to the Father and him in the exact same way and flow in the, the greater works he goes and explains in detail how Holy Spirit teaches us, leads us, empowers us. Jesus says, he goes, I'm going to be raised from the dead. He goes, and because I'm raised, because I go up, you're going to have life in you now. And I just think how, man, there is a source of the life of God available to us by Holy Spirit on the inside. It's available to us now because Jesus was crucified and resurrected, went to the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit. We have life in us now available, and he's trying to explain to them, this is how you're going to get through all the challenges and the crises. Life is going to be on the inside of you. I want to live tapped into that life, the light the glory that's on the inside by Holy Spirit. That's, that's what he's inviting us into in John 13 to 17. He explains the union of intimacy between the Father, Son, and Spirit. He gives us the Trinity in so many different ways and such incredible language. 
And then he, he definitively expresses the love of God for us over and over and over. He says, as the Father loves me, I love you. He says, the Father himself loves you. He says, I desire that you'd be with me. I mean, just over and over and over and over. If you're wrestling with understanding God's love for you, take a deep dive into John 13 to 17. Seriously. If you're wrestling with it, if, if you're, you're fighting through a performance mentality, an orphan mentality, he literally says, I'm not leaving you as an orphan. I mean, it's, it's powerful. The language is so powerful. Each phrase is intentional. And he is definitively expressing God's love for us. There's so many things. I'm just sort of spewing these points, but there's so many things in the passages. We're gonna go through you know, as much as we can in a few weeks, this is, you could, you could study this for an entire year and not plumb all the depths of it. So I want to invite us all into the study of John 13 through 17. If I was to say, what's the overarching theme of this last thoughts? What's the overarching theme? I would say this, that John 13 to 17, Jesus is teaching us how to live with an open heart toward God and to one another. He's explaining to us that that's the way that normal Christianity is supposed to be walked out. An open heart toward God and an open heart toward one another. And in that, we are are going to flow in love in such a deep and rich way. We're going to experience the God type of life that Jesus died to give us an open, vulnerable heart. I'm convinced the world right now is trying to get us to shut down our hearts. All the betrayal, all the difficulty, all the challenge, all the trauma, all the triggering, it's all focused on trying to get you to shut your heart down, Christian. But Jesus' word is love. Open your heart. Pour out your heart. Paul said to the Corinthian church, he said, listen, I've opened my heart to you. He goes, won't you please open your heart to me? And there's this interaction of flowing in love with open hearts that aren't self-protecting, that we're entering, that will enter into this amazing reality of what's fellowship with God shining through We touch that with one another. We flow in that with God. And that's what the church in maturity is going to look like. Flowing hearts of love in oneness, experiencing and expressing the glory of God. Amen and amen. All right, let's stand. So again, I know I'm, I'm teaching a little bit and I'm sort of reading the menu, but I want to... Again, challenge you. Take the notes that I put out. I got so many references in there. Just I just did like a page and a half. It'll serve as a springboard for you to get into this study over the next four to six weeks. Good. All right, let's pray. There's some.